Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Woodrow Wilson didn't show up for his party convention in Baltimore. His sense of dignity kept him away, The Economist wrote in 1912. When reporters rushed to his home to tell him he had won the nomination, they found him reading a biography of the Victorian liberal William Gladstone. Wilson's modesty was not so exceptional for the time. It wasn't until 1932 that the actual nominee was undignified enough to address the party faithful. Franklin Roosevelt gave his acceptance speech on national radio. President Trump appeared every night of this week's Republican convention. He used the White House as a backdrop, another break with precedent. Six of this week's primetime speakers shared his surname. Modesty is over. With 66 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take a big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how much has Donald Trump changed the Republican Party? The running order at the Republican convention has been dominated by Trump family members and cameos from ordinary folks caught up in the culture wars. The president's kicked aside the three-legged stool that propped up Ronald Reagan's Republicans, moral and global leadership combined with sound finances. What remains of the party beyond loyalty to Donald Trump? With me to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and Idris Kaloon, the public policy correspondent who's standing in for John Fasman this week, who joins us from DC. What have you guys made of the RNC? I think that generally it's been pretty well done as a contrast to Democrats, certainly. It's interesting how light on policy both the RNC and the DNC have been. The Democrats have a lot of policy to talk about. The Republicans don't as much, but they really are using these very broad goals and values to frame the differences between the parties. Idris, how have you found that policy lightness? I mean, you're the economist's policy wonk in chief in DC. So has it been very distressing to see total absence of any kind of policy? I mean, the Republicans didn't even bother to put together a party platform this time around. In a way, yeah. But I guess it also makes work easier because there's less to write about in that sense. One thing that's interesting has been how the speakers have toggled between the sort of dark vision of, of socialism coming to take over the party, which seems like it might have been better written for Bernie Sanders. And there's this attempt to portray Biden as sort of, you know, uh, cowed to the leftist forces in the party, which, which is interesting. And it toggles between that and sort of these uplifting segments about Trump's personal character and heroism and these sorts of things. And so you sometimes the switching back and forth will disorient you, but maybe it's not intended to be watched all at once instead to be parceled off for social media. 
Do you think it's been good TV, better TV perhaps than the DNC? I mean, one thing that the president really knows how to do, because he spent you know a long career doing it, is make watchable TV that people will tune into. Has it worked sort of better as a TV spectacle than, say, the RNC in Cleveland in 2016? I think conventions seem to work better this way. There's less of the sort of boring speakers. You know, time limits seem to be a pretty good innovation. And given that the RNC had to rapidly come together, I think within four weeks from its scheduled programming as in person in Jacksonville, I think they pulled it off reasonably well. The question of whether it's better TV is really in the eye of the beholder. I mean, Melania Trump's speech, I thought, was notable in trying to strike a compassionate note when she looks into the camera, you know, her face kind of haunts my dreams. She's very, <laughs> <laughs> she, she has quite a stare. Really. Yes. I think in different ways, the conventions were each captivating. And it really depends on whether you're captivated in wondrous awe in a good way or in terror in a bad way. So I think each of them were really effective. Okay, well, there's lots for us to talk about in this podcast. Perhaps a bit counterintuitively, we're going to begin this week by going back in time a little bit. An interesting way to think about how Donald Trump has transformed the Republican Party is to compare this week's convention with the one four years ago. There were familiar themes in both events, of course, but what struck me most was who was missing this time around, the ghosts at the feast. The 2016 Republican convention was, in many ways, a faithful trailer for the future presidency. A focus on enemies at home and abroad, with loyalty to Donald Trump, the most conspicuous credo. Trump, having received a majority of these votes entitled to be cast at the convention, has been selected as the Republican Party nominee for president of the United States. Paul Ryan's transformation at the Cleveland Convention was particularly revealing. Then Speaker of the House, the Wisconsin congressman, had been one of Trump's most powerful critics during the campaign. He thought the reality TV star was immoral and unfit for office, and said so publicly. But in Cleveland, Ryan prioritized his loyalty to the party over his misgivings about the candidate. What do you say that we unify this party? What do you say that we unify this party at this crucial moment when unity is everything? Let's win this thing. Let's show America our best and nothing less. Thank you. So began a fraught two years of accommodation between Washington's biggest Reaganite wonk and the nativist neophyte in the White House. Ryan harnessed the president's political momentum to achieve cherished conservative goals on tax, the military and the judiciary while trying to curb his worst impulses. He avoided public confrontation with the president, but relations broke down over Trump's coziness with Russia. Ryan retired in 2018, aged just 48. He was nowhere to be seen this week. We we do not need a reckless president who believes she is above the law. Michael Flynn was a breakout star in 2016, but he's also missing this time. The former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency had fallen out with the Obama administration over the persistent threat of Islamic terrorism. Lock her up. That's right. Yes, that's right. Lock her up. General Flynn became Trump's most effective surrogate in sounding the alarm over the Democrats' failures on national security. I have called on Hillary Clinton to drop out of the race because she, she put our nation's security 
at extremely high risk with their careless use of a private email server. But Flynn's subsequent stint as head of the National Security Agency was the shortest ever. He resigned after he was caught lying to the vice president over his links to Russia. Flynn was the first felon from the Trump administration. If I did a tenth, a tenth of what she did, I would be in jail today. Flynn's brief career in politics stands in contrast to another absentee from this year's convention. Thank you so much, good friends. Jeff Sessions also had a starring role in 2016. He was the most important champion of Trump's insurgent candidacy on Capitol Hill. At a time when party elders were still calling The Apprentice star a joke, support from the Alabama senator of 20 years gave Trump crucial conservative kudos. Average Americans have been the first to know that something is wrong with this economy. Our middle class is steadily declining, with our African-American and Hispanic communities being the hurt the most. But the Washington establishment, the media, big corporations have been in denial. President Trump brought Sessions into his administration as attorney general. Uniquely among presidential acolytes, he brought operational competence to his populist politics. For 30 years, our good and decent people have rightly pleaded with their leaders for an end to the lawlessness and for sound immigration policies that are fair and advance the national interest. To this legitimate plea, our elites have responded with disdain, dismissal, and scorn. Jeff Sessions' respect for Washington propriety proved his undoing. He recused himself from the FBI's investigation into Trump's links to Russia. The president never forgave him. He mocked and insulted him on Twitter. Forced to quit the administration, Sessions tried to win back his Alabama Senate seat. He was trounced in this year's primary vote by Tommy Tuberville, a football coach whose singular political qualification is Trump's endorsement. As our Lexington columnist wrote, it was astonishing to see Mr. Sessions' career-long claim on Alabaman affections blown away in this fashion. Amid so many examples of the president's grip on Republican voters, Jeff Sessions' erasure from the politics of 2020 remains remarkable. Mr. Speaker, it is my distinct honor and great pleasure to nominate Donald J. Trump for the office of President of the United States of America. Charlotte, did you have the same impression as me watching this RNC? You know, so many really prominent Republican politicians have essentially had their careers wiped out by President Trump. And into the void where they might have otherwise been speaking, you had a long parade of of Trump family members with, of course, the president himself appearing on every day of the convention. Yes, it was pretty interesting, the group of people they chose to bring to the forefront. I think the best choices that they made were to have Tim Scott and Nikki Haley speak And each of them, in different ways, presented a fresh take on who the Republican Party can be. And I was struck in particular by the way each of them used their personal story to reinforce this idea that the American dream is alive and well. Tim Scott, who's the first and only Republican Black senator, had that great line that his family went from cotton to Congress in one lifetime. And he invoked Martin Luther King. And the idea there was to say, 
you really can make it in America. And that's effective for Republicans on a few reasons. One, it helps to counter this idea that America has a strong tradition of racism that is alive and well, which many in the Democratic Party would argue is absolutely true. Nikki Haley very much countered that and said America is not racist. It also, on a policy level, implies that you don't need this dramatic intervention. You know, look at my story. You don't need huge new programs to be rolled out to help the poor throughout their life. You don't need to reshape America's economy in order to provide further social mobility. And Nikki Haley, I thought, was really interesting in going even beyond that because she pointed out that her parents, who were Indian immigrants, she said, my parents never gave in to grievance and hate. And that suggests not only do Democrats grossly misrepresent the problem, but also that their angry response to those perceived injustices in itself is a kind of moral failing that they've given in to this grievance and hate. So I thought that those two speakers were the most interesting and and powerful. Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, who then became the US ambassador to the United Nations. Idris, what did you make of the lineup of speakers? I thought Mike Pence best summarized it when he closed his speech by saying, make America great again, again. That's the policy agenda in itself, right? And when folks talk about what Trump is going to do, it's that he did reasonably well before COVID happened. He generated a good economy, and so therefore he can do it again. And there isn't very much more than that, that if you like the Trump show for the first three years, there's an asterisk on this most recent period, then you should sign up for another four seasons. That's very much the attitude that, that's been shown here. And some of the themes that, that keep coming up is this idea that Trump made these promises in 2016, and he's kept them. And so they want to say that the jobs were good. There's less attention to things like health care, where maybe Republicans don't have as much to talk about since Obamacare is still the law of the land, less attention to climate change, these sorts of things that are dominating the Democratic debate. I think that one difference, though, is that Democrats need to have a show of party unity, perhaps because they're more fractious than Republicans. Republicans for a long time now have been, even before the RNC, united in their basic belief in in Trump's goodness and, and his leadership. And there hasn't been, I think, as much of a need to consolidate the party, maybe as there was in 2016, when there had just been that loud primary fight. So perhaps, uh, you know, the red meat that's been thrown in this RNC actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, there, I don't think there has been comparatively as much work on trying to influence voters who might be on the fence. I'd agree with that. I think for all the talk about never Trump Republicans and the divisions within elite level Republican politics, since Donald Trump came on the scene, you know, the party is remarkably united as a coalition. It is the party of non-college white voters, largely, with a sort of party elite grafted on top of that. And the the difficulty for Republican Party management has always been keeping those bits together. But Donald Trump's actually pretty adept at that, right? He's very popular with white non-college Republican voters. They think he's fantastic. His approval ratings with them have held up really strongly. And then for the party elites, he's pursued actually the traditional Republican agenda on cutting taxes and deregulation and nominating conservative judges. So he's given enough of the party elites sort of what they want as well. And so you don't see a big division on show at the RNC this time around, I think. I was surprised by the number of African-American speakers that they had every night, at least two or three, often who are offering personal testaments to the president's own kindness and, and lack of racism. 
there was a real effort, I think, at getting non-white speakers to come up on to the platform and, and, and give them sort of this, this primetime showing. And, you know, I wonder whether the intention there is to try and push up the numbers among African-Americans, which are really, really bad for Republicans right now, as they tend to be in every cycle, or whether it's a way to convince maybe suburban women, for example, who are turned off by the reports they read about the president's actions on immigration and, and on race to make them more comfortable voting Republican. That might be another reason that they're doing that. I mean, Trump held a naturalization ceremony in the midst of the of the RNC with four or five people from very, very different parts of the world. Perhaps it's a way of sort of soft peddling some of those ideas that people will have from reading the news. I think that's a very important point. And I think what Nikki Haley said when she looked into the camera and she said, America is not racist, that may have been to win voters of color. But I think especially it's to make Republicans not feel bad for voting for Donald Trump. And I used to cover back in the day, consumer companies. And one thing that McDonald's always did is that it always had salad on the menu. And that wasn't because people ordered salad. It was because it made them feel better about going to McDonald's. (laughs) And I wonder whether there's something, a similar kind of strategy at work here. Yeah, so maybe one of the surprises of the RNC this week has been how much salad there has been on offer. Everybody is familiar with Donald Trump's pitch. But as you guys both pointed out, the party's gone to great lengths to try and sort of soften the president's edges a little bit. In a moment, we'll hear from the Trump campaign direct. But first, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. For the best offer on a new subscription, head to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. Our Midwest correspondent, Adam Roberts, reports from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Idris has been writing about schools and COVID. Charlotte has a piece on energy in California. That's just some of the delights that you'll find in this week's issue. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's also in the show notes for this episode. The actor James Woods, a Trump fan, previewed this week's convention pretty neatly by tweeting, This is our last stand, folks. If they take him down, America is gone forever. There's an odd parallel with last week's Democratic event. Partisans of both sides view November's election as the last chance to stop the other guys destroying the country. To get an inside view of the Republican pitch this year, I spoke to Hogan Gidley from the Trump campaign. What we wanted from this convention wasn't traditional. We wanted real Americans telling their stories of success, their personal feelings about what this president has done for them. And it wasn't meant to have a bunch of elected officials, a bunch of politicians talking about the good old days. That's what the Democrats put on display. I mean, you have Bill Clinton up there talking about the proper way to use the Oval Office. I mean, look, with all due respect, the last person in the world I want to take advice from on how properly to use the Oval Office is Bill Clinton. It's, it's the tone deafness that they had with some of their politicians that I think was, was quite stark. And theirs was kind of about Hollywood. Ours is about the heartland. There was a really interesting Sean Hannity interview with the president on Fox News recently. And he asked the president what he wanted to do with a second term. And, and President Trump stumbled a little bit. What do you think he does really want to do with another four years in power? And how would those four years differ from the four years we've just seen? Well, I think 
the question Sean asked is, is one that, that all the candidates end up getting. And I think the president was trying to point out, look, he wasn't even given a chance. Uh, he never came to this town and, and now he's been president. He stays in the White House and he's here every single day and he's fighting for the American people. And when you look at a second term, you have to build on the, the record setting successes and record setting time from the first term. So if we look back and we saw the job creation, record low unemployment for African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, women employed at record numbers, the stock market at soaring highs we'd never seen. That's good for everyone's 401k and their retirement accounts, their IRAs. That was pretty impactful, not to mention, you know, he promised to build a wall. He, he built it. He promised to rebuild the military. Uh, he rebuilt it. Uh, he promised to cut trade deals that work for the American worker and protect the American middle class. He did that. So you, you take a look back and you say, what did I do? And now what else do I want to accomplish? Um, and he put out a second term agenda just the other day about creating 10 million jobs in 10 months. That's 100 percent doable. He wants to eradicate COVID-19, try to get a vaccine by the end of the year, something that's safe and effective. He wants to bring back a million manufacturing jobs from China. That's very important. And when you compare and contrast our opinion of China versus Joe Biden's, I think that's stark, too. And so when you look at those kind of agenda items, we want to make sure school choice is something that's important. Uh, we want to continue to drain the swamp, congressional term limits, things like that, protecting our law enforcement, our brave men and women by by defending the police, not defunding them. And then, of course, ending illegal immigration is something he's been pushing for quite some time. So there are a lot of things we want to do in a second term that build off of the successes from the first. Hogan, it sounds in some ways like the pitch is partly, remember how great things were before COVID-19 hit, but COVID-19 did hit with an economic shock to the country. Lots of people lost their jobs. A lot of Americans lost their lives. Isn't it hard to make that pitch to voters to say, just, you know, kind of rewind a little bit before this virus hit and, and remember how strong the economy was and how great the unemployment numbers were and kind of judge us on that. Like it or not, the president's going to be judged on what's been happening over the past few months, isn't he? Even if the virus is a bolt from the blue. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that that's that's fair. And we'll put our record up on COVID against anyone. But I, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But you said something I think that's really telling. And you said, look, COVID did hit and it did hurt the economy. You understand that COVID did that. That's where you differ from Joe Biden. He's blaming the president for the economic issues that we're facing right now when everyone in the world knows it's COVID. Now, on top of that, when Joe Biden was asked just recently, would you shut the country down again? He said, yeah, if the experts tell me to do it, I'm going to shut down the country again. That would send us back into another black hole that I don't know that we'd ever recover from. You know, most campaigning, I'm sure that you guys have discovered and, and, and you guys have talked about, is it's all in the abstract. If you elect me, I'll do this. If you, if you put me in office, I'll work to do that. You don't have to guess how these two people would handle the economy. You don't have to guess how they'd handle a pandemic either. This president spoke about the need to stop coronavirus in February at the State of the Union address. He moved to shut down travel from China and from Europe. Joe Biden said that was xenophobic and racist. He would not have done that, is what he said. The President of the United States was talking about wearing masks March 31st from the briefing room. April 3rd, CDC and the President put out guidelines that include social distancing 
and yes, uh, sanitizing your hands, et cetera, and wearing masks. It was a month and five days later before the press corps all decided to wear masks in the briefing room. But to hear them tell it, they were ringing in the new year with champagne and N95 masks. They weren't. And what was going on during all of this time in the political landscape in this country? A word that wasn't used one time in the Democrat convention, impeachment. They were so focused on impeaching this president, they couldn't have cared less about a virus. Remember, it was Nancy Pelosi who went out to Chinatown in San Francisco. She said, come on out, everything's great. It was de Blasio and it was Cuomo in New York who didn't shut down New York for seven days after the rest of the country shut down. The point is, when you look at the two records, you don't have to guess how the president would react. We saw these things go in real time. Most of the deaths came from states with Democrat governors. So I don't want to go on too long of a rant, but you see my point. If you want to have the conversation about coronavirus, we'll have it because Joe Biden was nowhere to be found. Idris, let's start with you. I've been struck by how little of the RNC has been about COVID-19. But when the subject does come up, there's a kind of alternative version of events that's that's presented. Yeah, the alternative history is that feckless Democrats didn't really know what to do when confronted with the virus and were not for the president's early and prescient foresight in shutting down travel from China. Millions of lives would have been saved. Now, Obviously, you can look at some other dates that Mr. Goodley mentioned, you know, late February, Trump is saying that it's only 15 people, it's going to go down to zero soon. In April, he tweets about liberating Michigan and other states that are in lockdown. July is the first time that he puts on a mask. These are dates that I think lots of people will remember. And it's sort of remarkable that this is the approach that the Republicans are are taking. I don't know whether it'll work, whether voters will actually believe that this is actually how the story went because presumably they were all awake and sentient for the last few months. What's you know equally remarkable is when the coronavirus does come up. Larry Kudlow used the past tense when describing it, which was sort of remarkable in his speech. You know, 180,000 Americans have died already. Um, the death rates are still reasonably high, around a thousand a day. Probably the most detailed and compassionate take on it was Melania Trump's, where she gave an extended amount of sympathy to people who've been affected. For the rest of the of the Republicans, coronavirus is something that's very much in the past. And in fact, the way that you should judge this president is by indexing to January 2020. And uh, you should sort of forget about the intervening months and remember that if it happened once, it can happen again. Remember, you can keep America great again, again. I think you heard Hogan Gidley do something which, again, it's all in the eye of the beholder, right? So depending on who's listening, it either sounds very convincing or completely not credible. I think he's right to share the blame with Mayor de Blasio in New York, where I'm based. He certainly did not handle it well. I think that one thing that has always been interesting about Donald Trump compared with prior presidents and the way that they talked about the economy is that the economy is obviously hugely important to any president's record. But Donald Trump, more than most, really tethered himself to the stock market. He put a lot of attention from very early on at how well the stock market was doing. And, you know, that's one thing that through COVID, actually, the stock market has continued to do quite well. And so what seemed like kind of a risky bet is actually working out a little well for him on that part. The other thing that I would point out is that when you think back to 2016, 
he had that speech about how I alone can do this. I alone can save America. I alone am the person who should be entrusted with this enormous responsibility. And you hear from Hogan Gidley and from the president himself this sort of tension between the idea that only Trump can fix it and actually none of what's happened is his fault. And so that's something that we've seen again and again throughout the Trump presidency. I think it's particularly obvious when it comes to thinking about him being the commander in chief during the time of COVID. Yeah. And that's especially true since he he said that in, in 2016 when he was getting the nomination then, I alone can fix urban violence and lawlessness. And in his inauguration, he talks about, you know, American carnage and come this election, looting is very much and rioting and these sorts of things are very much part of the Republican argument for why you should reelect Trump because what's going on in cities in, in their mind is a preview of what Joe Biden's America would look like, which again is sort of an odd tension given that the man in charge is, is the man who uh, should ostensibly be the one to fix it. I think it's pretty effective, though. I mean, I think that the law and order thing, whether you think that he's right or wrong, is something to highlight. Defund the police. You've seen them bring it up again and again. I think that that, that's the pitch to the suburban female voter. You know, you saw those, the couple who had pulled guns out when people were marching past their home, given a very prominent speaking slot. And they're they're a well-dressed couple sitting in a nice living room. And the idea is to appeal to sort of suburban voters who think that their way of life is going to be totally ruined, comma, Democratic administration, because they're going to be the people thrown in jail for defending their property as the looters and rioters take over. So I think it's not really surprising that they're doing this, because I think it could prove effective. So we've seen the economic comeback theme. We've seen the law and order theme, which we've just been discussing. And another thing that's been quite prominent at the RNC is Republicans talking about cancel culture. You know, this idea that if Democrats disagree with you, they won't just disagree with you. They'll kind of shut you up or, or cancel you, take away your freedom of speech. How effective has that shtick been, do you think, this week? I think it's effective for ordinary voters who might not tune in too much. Voters tend not to have as much information as the people who obsessively follow politics. And so when they see things like this and they see, you know, news stories about things that, that genuinely seem quite scary. I think Marsha Blackburn, the, the Tennessee senator, said something to the effect of, you will not cancel our heroes, which, you know, I, I'm sure I, I don't know that Democrats want to cancel all police altogether. Some of them do. But, you know, giving a, an impression of the kind of most extreme elements of the party which is why they repeatedly brought up defunding police, the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, the dangers of socialism. None of these things that are actually in Biden's platform, but are really effective at getting modern Republicans who maybe not have, have not tuned in very much throughout the election to, to wake up and say, oh, my gosh, that, that doesn't seem very good. I, I need to vote for Trump even if I don't like some of his tone sometime. I think that's very much the intention. The other thing that I think is interesting is just it fits so well with the Make America Great thing. It is very much about the idea that someone is coming in to erase American culture as we know it, and we're the last point of defense. And you heard Hogan in your interview with him talking about the Democrats as Hollywood and, you know, Democrats represent Hollywood and we represent the heartland. That's something that Republicans have been talking about forever. It's particularly true this year and particularly true with Trump. You know, as to how effective it is, this is something that really strikes a chord 
not only among the base, but I think among some people who might be swing voters and just aren't sure, you know, they hear they hear these messages again and again that, that Biden is really going to change who America is and how America works. And this helps to feed that anxiety. Charlotte, you mentioned Don Jr. there. I mean, one of the other things that's really notable this time around, I mean, it's notable in 2016 in Cleveland, but I think it's even more notable now is quite how prominent the Trump family are in the president's political pitch. I mean, they've become his top surrogates, which is quite weird, isn't it, compared with, well, really compared with any previous presidential candidate we've ever seen, I think. I don't think I'm exaggerating now. I can't think I can't think of anything like it. No. And one interesting thing is that the all of the surrogates are not talking about how great Donald Trump was personally to them, but sort of meaty policy-related uh, speeches, right? Don Jr.'s speech is not about how great his father was to him when he was a kid or, or these sorts of things, but the threat that, you know, American monuments are under, which is fairly remarkable. The character witnessing is, is happening from other folks. Don was a good public speaker. And again, he's been really out there as a main spokesman for his dad. And he's really emerged over the past four years as a key advocate for his father's agenda. And he made a powerful speech, whether you agree with the contents of it is another matter. But I think you've seen him in particular among the Trump children really grow into this role over the course of Trump's first term. Well, one of the things I found out and about interviewing Republican voters in the pre-COVID days when that was possible is quite how often people bring up his children and his family as as a witness to his good character. You know, they'll often say to you, well, the press say that he's a really bad guy, but look at his children. They all seem really together and he seems to have done a great job of raising them. So he can't be such a bad man with such wonderful kids. So they are a really important part of his uh, sort of dynastic political appeal. An, an unusual one, but an important one. OK, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to assess what remains of the Republican Party beyond the Trump show. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. To assess Donald Trump's hold over his party, it's worth paying attention to the down-ballot elections. Control of the Senate will be a major factor determining America's political direction in the coming months. Democrats are hopeful they can snatch the Senate as well as the presidency from the Republicans in November. Elliot Morris is The Economist's polling guru and a regular on the podcast. He's been looking at the Senate races for us. We built a quick polling aggregation model to just get a feel for where the Senate races and the state of play lies right now. And we identified about five states that Democrats have a lot of promise in flipping from their current Republican control. The first is sort of a, a gimme, um, and that's in Colorado, where the former governor, John Hickenlooper's, is challenging the incumbent Republican, Cory Gardner. And, and right now, Hickenlooper's leading by more than 10 points in the polls. And that's good news for Democrats because they're facing a very tough re-election battle in Alabama, where the, the incumbent Democrat, 
Doug Jones is going up against Republican candidate Tommy Tuberville, and in a state that Donald Trump won by 20 points or more, that's uh, it's just a, a nearly impossible battle. So that leaves the Democrats needing to flip three more seats to take control of the chamber. They currently are running ahead in at least three, perhaps even four Senate races. And in order of their lead, the biggest promise is in Arizona, where the challenger astronaut candidate Mark Kelly is going up against the appointed incumbent Martha McSally um, and is polling pretty well there. Then in North Carolina, where the incumbent Senator Tillis is running five or ten points behind Cal Cunningham, the state former attorney general. Then in Maine, where Susan Collins is going up against a pretty strong challenger and Democratic candidate Sarah Gideon. So assuming that the Democrats win Colorado, they just need to flip these three races in Maine, North Carolina, and Arizona to take control of the chamber. And they have a pretty good shot at doing that right now. And if they don't, if they fall behind in one of those states, they could also look to some of the reach toss-up states, uh, perhaps a Georgia or a Montana or an Iowa, all of which right now the Democratic candidate is running just about even with the incumbent Republicans. One of the biggest deciding factors is likely to be President Trump, specifically how those states vote in the presidential election. We know from the past 50 years or so of the history of Senate races that in presidential elections, it's very rare and even rarer now to have states that split their tickets to vote for one party for the Senate or another federal or statewide race like the governorship and a different party for the presidency. So in these states, in Arizona, North Carolina, and Maine, these are all reliably or toss-up Democrat states right now. So we would expect them to be pretty close. And if Joe Biden holds on to his large 10-point lead, according to our forecasting model in the national polls, it's going to be pretty hard for Republicans to win these states. So although it's common in American politics to say that all politics are local, or in this case, statewide, the fate of the Senate really rests as well with the state of the presidential race. So imagine you're a Republican candidate for Senate in one of these swing states, North Carolina, Colorado, Arizona, Maine. Do you want Donald Trump showing up in your state? and campaigning for you or not. Are you better off really leaning into the Trumpishness of the Republican Party now or better off trying to put a bit of distance between yourself and the president? I think Cory Gardner, the Republican senator in Colorado, has very much taken the distance approach in his advertisements in the state itself. And his opponent is is trying quite hard to tie him to Trump himself. I think you see a similar sort of threading the needle done by Susan Collins in Maine where there's this delicate dance between being a Republican and therefore supporting the president, but also not being so unthinkingly supportive that you're not able to retain the independence that the the swing voters want from you. Well, Susan Collins is a really interesting case, I think, because in 2016, she wasn't on the ballot and she opposed him. And she hasn't yet said in this cycle who she's going to vote for. There was some news recently this week in which the head of the main GOP 
said that the senator does support Trump, which then Susan Collins's challenger immediately seized on. But I think it's particularly tricky for someone like Susan Collins, who clearly has not been a great admirer of the president in the past and is trying to to in some sense, leave him out of it this time around for her reelection campaign. And it's impossible to do so. There is also this point that if Democrats do take the Senate and they keep control of the House, they're going to do it by getting rid of Republicans who are probably the most moderate leaning, right? It'll, it'll be because Susan Collins and Martha McSally and, and Cory Gardner are no longer part of the party. If you cast yourself forward and think about what a hypothetical Biden administration might actually be able to do, the fact that they won't have moderate Republicans at, at all might put a dent in their policy aspirations as well. Yeah, Idris, I think that's a really good point about how cycle after cycle of attrition knocking out moderate Republicans will leave the party in a very different place. Charlotte, how has the Republican Party changed since 2016 in terms of who shows up to, to vote for Republicans at presidential elections? Well, one thing I have been really struck by is thinking about the evangelical vote Trump is not a traditional candidate for the conservative right because of the way that he's lived his personal life. Watching the convention this week, I was I was really struck by Abby Johnson's speech, who was someone who had been an employee at Planned Parenthood, and she very graphically described overseeing abortions there. Um, it's hard to imagine that speech being given in a convention to reelect George W. Bush. But I was looking at some of the data on white evangelicals. And in 2000, they were about 31% of the voter base, the largest group in the GOP. And in 2016, actually, that the chair had risen to 35%. And Trump has been really effective in talking about his appointments to the Supreme Court, as well as throughout the rest of the judiciary. And there are some voters for whom this is really a single issue election. And so I think that they're worth keeping in mind. Yes, the relationship between Donald Trump and the evangelical wing of the party is, of course, one of the most fascinating subplots, I think, in Republican Party politics now. And if you listen to a lot of evangelicals talk about Donald Trump now, as Charlotte says, they're not going to say he's the most godly man, but they often seem to present him as a sort of protector. I mean, Charlie Kirk, who runs a sort of Trumpy NGO called Turning Point USA, likes to describe Donald Trump as the bodyguard of Western civilization. And he's also the sort of bodyguard for evangelicals. So they kind of know he's not one of them, but they seem to broadly trust him to keep them safe and safe from Democrats who who want to kind of cancel all the things that they like about America. Donald Trump, of course, is still well behind in the head-to-head polls with Joe Biden. But if he is to win, it will be by getting a kind of disproportionate turnout from evangelical Christians, from non-college white voters of a kind that pollsters aren't currently anticipating. All right, before I let you both go, I have a quiz. And Idris, I ought to warn you that Charlotte has been on a hot streak recently. So I, I hope you've, you know, I hope your shoulders are loose and, and, and you're, you're, you're feeling good about this. Donald Trump first appeared in The Economist in February 1979. The piece was about a property deal involving New York's tallest towers, the Empire State and the World Trade Center. Our correspondent couldn't resist a movie reference. Who is the other hirsute celebrity with a fondness for skyscrapers mentioned in the article? Oh, um... King Kong? Yeah, King... It is. That can't be, is it? Oh. <laughs> is King Kong Even with that much blathering, blathering answer. I, was, I thought that you were really looking for a human here. Yeah. But I'll grant that to Idris. Well done, well done. 
I only had half a second on you. I think that was pretty simultaneous. You're getting a point each for that. No, that was way too generous. The biggest insult to me is if if the bar gets lowered to such an extent that just saying um ah means that I get a point. <laughs> um ah was, sounds like a pretty good impersonation of King Kong, but that, there we go. Okay, which real life megafauna of the East Indies inspired the King Kong story? Megafauna, so that's 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 big, right? Absolutely no idea. Tell me. It's not, it's not just a gorilla? Apparently it was the Komodo dragon. So William Douglas Burden, who was a trustee of the American Museum of Natural History, led an expedition to capture the giant lizards in 1926. The explorers brought back carcasses for the museum and two live dragons for the Bronx Zoo. The animals captivated New York and Burden's friend, the film director Marion Cooper, who went on to make King Kong in 1933. So there you go. Economists really giving you news you can yeah, use. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Animal trivia from the 1930s is, is really uh, a strong suit. Well, thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Bye, John. Thanks so much. That's all from us. Thanks very much for listening. If you like the podcast, please let everyone know and leave a review in your podcast app. You can also send us feedback on email. Nice feedback, that is radio at economist.com is the address we'll have more checks and balance next week